Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's September 1st, 2020. Today's show is Marking Revolution, Malcolm X, and Black-Mindedness. Our opening song is Brother Malcolm by Archie Shepp from his 1999 release, Conversations. Archie Shepp, surely one of the great political philosophers of so-called jazz, accompanies us throughout. While preparing for this conversation, another black man, Jacob Blake, was shot in the back by police, this time in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But it could have been, likely has been, in any village, any town, any city, in what surely must be known as our American dystopia. Central to the political philosophy of Malcolm X is police brutality. This unaccountable violence undermines any claim that might be made to suggest progress has been made for black residents in America. One can hardly suggest black people are even considered citizens. In his new book, Black Minded, published by Pluto Press, Michael Sawyer argues that the foundational concepts of Malcolm X's political philosophy, economic and social justice, strident opposition to white supremacy and black internationalism are often obscured by an emphasis on biography. Black-minded demonstrates the way in which Malcolm X's philosophy is an integral part of the revolutionary politics formed to alleviate the plight of people of African descent globally. Michael Sawyer is an assistant professor of race, ethnicity, and migration studies in the Department of English at Colorado College. Today, we'll highlight some of Malcolm X's appearances and speaking engagements throughout. These have been edited for concision. Links to the full recordings will appear on our website. Let's start with Malcolm X on black nationalism. This is a selection from the well-known speech, The Ballot or the Bullet, delivered in Detroit on April 12, 1964. We must know what politics is supposed to produce. We must know what part politics play in our lives. And until we become politically mature, we will always be misled, led astray, or deceived or maneuvered into uh, supporting someone politically who doesn't have the good of our community at heart. So the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that we will have to carry on a program, a political program of re-education to open our people's eyes, make us become more politically conscious, politically mature. And then we will, whenever we get ready to cast our ballot, that ballot will be, for, uh, will be cast for a man of the community who has the good of the community at heart. And now, Marking Revolution, Malcolm X and Black Mindedness, with Michael Sawyer on Interchange on WFHB. So welcome, Michael Sawyer, to Interchange. No, I appreciate the opportunity, Doug. Thanks a lot. Sure. Now, you spend the length of your new book that's uh, out from Pluto Press detailing what it means to be black-minded or what Malcolm X might mean by it and its implications. Can you start us out with a kind of -of back-of-the-hand definition before we dig into it? When we were doing a close reading of a few of his speeches, he references references the term kind of twice in his, that I can find in his entire uh, 
you know, corpus of, of material. And what it seems to mean for him and the way I elaborate in the book is that being black minded is both a goal and the manner in which you become it. Right. So you have to it's part of his notion of a type of dignity and uh, complex and robust self-regard that black people have to have for themselves that then allows them to think about themselves and the world differently. And then to arrive at that point because of that process that allows them to see the world in a manner that always up, uplifts their personhood, their humanity, et cetera. So it's primarily a kind of humanistic argument. So a large point is that Malcolm X is himself is a kind of philosophy in motion, I suppose, a, a philosopher on the fly or a philosopher in in an extemporaneous sense. He's thinking and developing thought in public places and in interviews with friends and enemies. Uh, so, so it's a big part of trying to understand him as a thinker. Why do you make the claim that Malcolm X is a political philosopher or a philosopher? The West assumes, and this is part of becoming black-minded and having a particular type of self-regard, Western, the Western philosophical tradition, most obviously, certain ways like Hegel, who proposed in his philosophy of history, proposed that Africans were people without a historical footprint or historical meaning, right? Which is to extract rationality from black bodies. And so if the black bodies assumed to be irrational and incapable of, of thinking, it's also necessarily incapable of philosophizing, which Western, Western philosophy from kind of Descartes forward, the kind of I think, therefore I am, is a threshold condition of being human. To recapture Malcolm X as a philosopher, particularly in his notion of being black-minded and having that type of self-regard and rationality with respect to being black is to automatically assume the humanity and decenter this notion from Western, the Western philosophical tradition that black people are incapable of thinking carefully or complexly. Now, you do make note or make use of several uh, traditional, I suppose, philosophers and Western thinkers. Uh, you mentioned Hegel there, uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre as well. And you consistently also uh, make reference to uh, Franz Fanon, who, you know, isn't a Western thinker per se, but is one, obviously, who has been uh, assumed canonical, I suppose, at this point. Um, is this because Malcolm himself uh, was engaging in some way with these authors and even some of their specific texts? I think it's that, but it's explicitly this notion that then we can just call it Africana philosophy, radical black thought, black political thought is necessarily an oppositional practice. So what I mean is that to think, and we just kind of walk through that with respect to thinking about Descartes differently and assembling the notion that the fact of how blackness has been created negatively formed blackness over the long durée of kind of white supremacy, kind of roughly 1492 forward, is that you have to think about the boundaries of the Western philosophical tradition that have literally bounded black people in a particular box in order to exceed them. So in the book, when I'm thinking about uh, Sartre or Benjamin or Hegel, or for that matter, and I think you're right, with Fanon, who's a classically educated person in the kind of French philosophical tradition, is to then be able to understand the boundaries that exist for Western thought and then be aware of the fact of when you're exceeding them or actually operating within them. So that's the reason why these people come up. And I think Malcolm X is engaged in the way that we're all engaged with the Western philosophical tradition is that white supremacy as a system of thinking has created the world in which we live. So the very context in which we exist on a day-to-day -day basis is to stake out a philosophical position with relationship to how we understand the West. That's good. And as, as you were talking, it made, made clear to me again, the idea of thinking in these forms um, as tied to even the ability to be in a geographical space. And we'll talk about this later as well, that the thought itself is, is bounding us the way the geographical space has bounded us. And the project here is to be aware of the boundary and and look 
to ways to move across it, through it, around it, uh, to be with others uh, across those boundaries, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, again, from that kind of Western tradition, but Theodore Adorno, in his book on aesthetics, says, you know, paraphrasing him, is that as soon as a boundary is witnessed and understood, it's basically exceeded, right? Because then you have absorbed the boundary into your being. So the question of, and this is back to your initial uh, provocation about what it means to be black minded is to then approach those boundaries from a different direction, right? So the argument, uh, kind of the final argument of being black minded is to resituate and decenter kind of white, uh, supremacy, Western philosophical thought, and then approach it from the center of black thought, which then allows you to absorb it and then, uh, make use of it rather than being absorbed. So that's a kind of geographic and your, the kind of notion of geographic spatiality helps me understand it because it literally almost functions like a type of Venn diagram or just what you're considering, right? These notion of boundaries that then abut each other and can oftentimes clash, but oftentimes can be absorbed in particular ways. And generally that takes a type of conflict. Now, your book has four chapters uh, that detail an aspect of this political philosophy and, and makes um, sense. It makes sense to follow that arc here as well. These are uh, ontology, the body, geographic space, and revolution. You, of course, have a conclusion after that and an introduction before that, but those are the, your four primary chapters. In these chapters, you're highlighting specific speeches and interviews in order to demonstrate Malcolm X's thinking. So let's start with ontology. And first, if you don't mind, broadly, what What's your goal in the chapter? What I'm trying to accomplish in that chapter is to understand how Malcolm X situates the, the abstract notion of the black person or the, the, the kind of metaphysical existence of the, of the black person prior to thinking about the actual physical manifestation. To be clear, you know, we are trying to understand the uh, being black minded, being black at all in America, at least the United States, at least. And of course, any, anywhere there's a white supremacist, uh, functioning nation, I suppose, or, or ideology is to not have a being in some sense, right? Absolutely. It's literally that to be a kind of non-being or a lack. I mean, in the language, in fact, rigs this argument, right? Because the notion of, of black as being bad, as black as being empty, black as being harmful automatically situates it like that, right? So when we say something like it was a dark day or, you know, Black Friday or, you know, Black Monday, those kinds of things already have to be recaptured and resituated in order for us to be able to even think about being, big B being in the way that we understand an existence that has actual, and this is back to what Hegel was saying, right? To extract the notion of being is to extract historical existence. And even what when Fanon says in uh, Black Skin, White Mask is that, you know, the black body lacks ontological resistance in the white supremacist eyes, right? There's nothing there. And so that's what the notion of this ontology chapter is to to immediately put something there so we can then begin to assemble this argument from a perspective of being. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Marking Revolution, Malcolm X and Black-Mindedness with author Michael Sawyer who argues in his new book that the political philosophy of Malcolm X is essential to becoming black-minded and confronting the police state of our American dystopia. You point to a program coming out of Chicago called City Desk that aired on March 17, 1963, with Malcolm X on it. And I'll be honest, I think it's an interview that everyone should listen to as much for its smug white interlocutors than anything else. It is a, it's a fascinating interview. It's a, and, and Malcolm X actually does a, a brilliant job in it as well. Malcolm. 
twice you've referred to to the Negroes, the so-called Negroes. You you find uh, some fault with this description, yes. I gather. Yes, Mr. Muhammad teaches us that uh, Negro is a term that was applied to us during slavery by the slave master. And to write it right today, it's a term that is used only to point out the descendant of slaves. It's never used for black people, period. Africans can come to this country. They aren't called Negroes. And if they are called Negroes, they resent it. So if Negro meant black, as we've been taught, it would be a term that would be applicable to or pliable to everyone. Uh, but he says that it is something that means a slave or something who is, it means something uh, that has been left out of society, politically, economically, uh, educationally, and otherwise. You don't think of it as an anthropological term? Definitely. It's not an anthropological term. It's a slave term. And it was a term that was invented in America and was used by the slave makers, slave traders, and slave masters and attached to the property or the chattel uh, or merchandise that our people represented in that particular day. What is your real name? Malcolm. Malcolm X. Uh, is that your legal name? As far as I'm concerned, it's my legal name. Have you been to court to establish the I don't, I, I didn't have to go to court to be called Murphy or Jones or Smith. The same slave master who owned us uh, put his last name on us to denote that we were his property. So that when you see a Negro today who's named Johnson, if you go back in his history, you'll find that he was once his grandfather or one of his forefathers was owned by a white man who was named Johnson. His name is Bunch. His, his grandfather was owned by a I white man point. that was uh, named Bunch. Would you mind telling me what your father's last name was? My father didn't know his last name. My father got his last name from his grandfather, and his grandfather got it from his grandfather, who got it from the slave master. The real names of our people were destroyed well, during was there slavery. Any, was there any line, uh, any point in, in the genealogy of your family when you did have to use the last name? And if so, what was it? The last name of my forefather. Yeah. was taken from them when they were brought to America and made slaves. And then the name of the slave master was given, which we refuse. We reject that name today. You mean, you, mean to... you won't even tell me what your father's supposed last name was or gifted last name was? I never acknowledge it whatsoever. Why, why do you choose this, this particular interview? It's an example of this notion of what I call thinking in motion that Malcolm is doing. And he doesn't have, you know, as, as you examine his kind of biographical situation, he doesn't have the same type of interlocutors around him that someone like Martin Luther King did, like Rustin, or even for that matter, you know, people internal to the SCLC who were his intellectual equals or interested in the same type of of discourse, he actually had to go into these oppositional spaces almost constantly and have these kinds of arguments, right? So what this interview takes up from the very beginning is to is to deny his existence and to force him to describe himself and to say what they want him to say is his last name, and he refuses it. And I think that he's staking out ontological ground in that argument. He just won't do it, and um, they keep trying to get him to do it, and are like frustrated by it. And then they actually go forward and try to bait him simply by saying the name of Elijah Muhammad's, um, I guess, slave uh, master-oriented name, right? Uh, in an attempt to draw Malcolm into that same space. And this is why I'm saying you can see these kind of notions of two systems of thinking clashing and these boundaries, because what they're trying to do is to to recapture him, and he's already freed himself in that way by disallowing them to define him by forcing him into a genealogy that he's tracing back to kind of slavery. He's saying, I acknowledge, I know it exists, but I'm disavowing it with this practice of naming. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a specific interview about the nation of Islam more than Malcolm X, right? Right. 
Yeah, this is still when Malcolm is is internal to the Nation of Islam, and he's at that point is the primary spokesman for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. So much of what they're up to is also to to render his thinking kind of idiosyncratic or you know kind of intellectual quackery to make it seem like this is some type of absurd system of thought and and to situate it as a type of uh, black supremacy or a kind of hatred, abstract hatred of white people. And he resists all of that at the same time. But it flows from this perspective. The way I understand it, it flows from this notion of ontology and naming becomes the primary point of focus. Yeah, just the, even uh, the way that language is used here is important also. And as you say, the um, naming of uh, the being itself, right? So the Negro is a named being that is a non-being. And they're contending, you know, they're Malcolm and, uh, of course, uh, Elijah Muhammad, Nation of Islam, contending that Negro is a, a, a slave appellation, a, a word created by the slave nation, the slave master, uh, that that they object to, obviously, but also in how they phrase it, the so-called Negro um, rejects it as well. And uh, I do, I I was really just impressed at at the way not only they kept trying to push him on that point. Right. Um, asking if it was anthropological. Um, and then also the way he would, I guess I would say slip and just say Negro, right? He'd slip and just say Negro and they'd be like, Hey, you just said Negro. And he was like, it wasn't willful. Yeah. I mean, I think he's actually performing the notion of, of a journey towards being black minded, right? He's showing you how you can slip because the language traps you. And he tries to draw this distinction. And oftentimes when he's careful, it's fine, right? There's Negro, the so-called Negro, Black, Afro-American are the kind of four terms that he circles around. And each one of them has their own weight. And he's generally careful. But every now and then, because of that type of pressure, the language will will confound it. And so that's when we we ask about what it means to become black minded is to be able to to navigate that space with that with uh, without having to think about it. And he's working to become like that. So it's it's a process even for him. Yeah, no, it's it's really an impressive uh, interview. Uh, again, as much to watch white supremacists do their work. Yeah, absolutely, and to also and I and you know I think it's important what you're what you're proposing is to actually go and listen yeah. to Malcolm X because one of the things you miss in reading his speeches is just how funny he is yeah. and how quickly he's able to to respond. Right? It's, it's it's just kind of almost athlete, intellectual athleticism that's that's really profoundly interesting to pay attention to because he's one of the great thinkers of the 20th century and he's a profoundly not classically educated person. So it's fascinating from that perspective. I think in this chapter, you you do point again to the cogito, right? You talk about Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am. In this chapter, you point to the way the black person in America has been taught to uh, to say really rather, I think, therefore I hate myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, this leads us to kind of our contemporary moment. That's an echo or ramification of that entire system of thinking to say Black Lives Matter is to to then be able to try to recapture that. Right. And so what I'm proposing is that and this is where, you know, Descartes and Sartre overlap, where this kind of notion of primary thinking, which is first order thinking about the self, which is what Descartes is talking about. Right. So if you think about yourself and, and you reach to touch the self and you get a positive reflection back, that's the I think, therefore I am situation. Right. If you reach and touch yourself and get a negative reflection back, what is happening is that is not a representative 
a representation of primary thinking. That's a representation of thinking that you're primary thinking, but actually taking what other people think about you as primary thinking, mm-hmm. right? So this is the stuff of like those things you stick on your refrigerator if you go to one of these like mindfulness stores, right? Okay. It says, you know, don't let other people define you, literally. So if you if other people are defining you and you mistakenly believe that that's your own self-definition, you can get yourself into real trouble. And white supremacy has been about that project since the very beginning, right? Basically making uh, black people... Uh, indigenous people and, 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 you know, marginalized people kind of going forward, whether it's, uh, queer politics, uh, trans community, what have you, to believe that the negative things that they feel about you are actually the negative things you feel about yourself. And the kind of internal notion of thinking about the self that, that Descartes is up to requires that of the normative Western subject and actually sets up a trap for those that are to be sub, sublated for the subaltern and Western societal order. It's time for a break. This is Archie Shep with Call Me By My Rightful Name from New Thing at Newport, recorded in 1965. More on what it means to be black-minded with author Michael Sawyer when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Marking Revolution on the political philosophy of Malcolm X, and our guest is Michael Sawyer, author of the new book, Black Minded. In this segment, we continue to examine the meaning of X as a name and find our way back to the beginning, that is, the book of Genesis. When you move to X and try to clear that space, um, you're trying to, to sort of undo quite a bit of Western theological propositions as well, quite a bit of uh, biblical uh, thinking as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is literally Genesis 101 or kind of Western Society 101 if you situate the GJO Christian tradition in that way, where the first thing that Adam is required to do from after his creation by God is to name everything. Right. Adamic naming. And in the naming, he actually gives the things their function. And this leads to this kind of where we can, you know, you can trace this kind of notion of a, a type of patriarchy, right? Because he names everything and finds that everything's insufficient for his companion, which then requires the creation of what becomes known as woman that later becomes Eve. But the important part of Adamic naming is that is the giving of the function, right? So when you're thinking about the enslaved condition, the notion that the master would then name or appellate their name onto the to the subjectivity gave them the function that they played in societal order. So it's a deeply complex philosophical unraveling to say that I'm going to refuse that. And then at the same time, begin to unravel this, this notion of the inseparability of my function as a, a laborer, a forced laborer, a coerced laborer, an enslaved person from my subjectivity as a human being. What nation of Islam kind of orthodoxy 
traces is exactly that argument, right? So the X becomes an, an empty space, a cipher that can be filled as a place of exhaustion, right? Where you can exhaust all of the possibilities that had, had once been there that exhausted the body, right? This notion that you're required to do certain work, that you have to be called this and that you have to cop to uh, the lack of a traditional relationship because of the middle passage to historical being in Africa to say that that X then represents a, a space of possibility. And what that possibility is going to be filled with, in my argument, is black mindedness. And this is Malcolm X's elaboration kind of past nation of Islam orthodoxy that Elijah Muhammad proposes, he thinks past that and says, this X is not just an emptiness. It's a space that can be filled and we're going to fill it with this kind of complicated thinking. Okay. So the next chapter is uh, the body. And again, if you don't mind, uh, what's the aim of situating the argument here in the body? Yeah. So I make this argument that Malcolm X's philosophical system is a, is a profoundly embodied or corporeal system, right? Like it's, it's, obviously cerebral because it's based upon thinking, but it's about thinking how this body that he's concerned about operates in a particular type of space. And that space happens to be uh, planet Earth and Western societal order that's implicated in always trying to bound a particular body to discipline it in certain ways. So the chapter on the body allows us to immediately take up what I think is the, the central uh, preoccupation of his philosophical system, this notion of police violence and violence visited upon black bodies by state power. In this chapter, then, you use the speech called the Harlem Hate Gang Scare from May 29, 1964. Malcolm, my people, dear God, Malcolm. If we're going to talk about police brutality, it's because police brutality exists. Why does it exist? Because our people in this particular society live in a police state. A black man in America lives in a police state. He doesn't live in any democracy. He lives in a police state. That's what it is. That's what, what Harlem is. Any occupied territory is a police state. And this is what Harlem is. Harlem is a police state. It's the police in Harlem, their presence is like occupation forces, like an occupying army. They're not in Harlem to protect us. They're not in Harlem to look out for our welfare. They're in Harlem to protect the interests of the businessmen who don't even live there. And I'm not against the law. I'm not against law enforcement. I'm not a, you need laws to survive and you need law enforcement officers to have an intelligent, peaceful uh, society. But we who have, have to live in these uh, places and suffer the type of conditions that exist from officers who lack understanding and lack any human feeling or lack any feeling for the fellow human being, we who have to suffer these things are beginning to see where we are not being considered at all when they select the type of persons that they send into Harlem to uh, enforce the law. What's the occasion for that speech? So, it, and it's not atypical to exactly what we're talking about in our contemporary moment again, right? There's this rumor going around, this kind of conspiracy theory that uh, a bunch of black vigilantes were running around Harlem, killing people, uh, attacking the police, and and something had to be done about it, right? So it was a conspiracy theory that then allows a type of unaccountable and abstract attack of police upon black people just because they happen to be there, right? Arguing that they must be doing something wrong because we've heard that this is what they're up to. And there's no, and it's a completely false argument. And this, this again tracks with the kind of fear mongering 
that we see going on in our moment right now where black people are to be feared necessarily. And you can take preemptive action in order to prevent something from happening, which then informs this notion of police attacking bodies. And so Malcolm X is profoundly concerned about that. The position from the police in Kenosha was that the um, um, the man was near a knife and then, and then he got shot in the back seven times. Yeah, it's, it's absurd, right? Jacob Blake is is automatically assumed to be dangerous, and this and this notion of always and I and I and I become exhausted with this from a really important position, right? This notion of uh, unarmed black person, which means that to be armed is necessarily to be guilty, which in America is a completely ridiculous statement based upon the Second Amendment, right? You're supposed to be able to be armed, but the notion that there's there's uh, any type of thing that could be construed as a weapon within a thousand feet of this individual. Therefore, he becomes somebody that should be shot seven times in the back becomes exactly what, what Malcolm X is talking about with this notion of the hate gang scare because black people in his philosophical system, this particular instance speaks for is analogized to kind of black people broadly concerned, right? It's that black people are actually a type of hate gang that's running around always just one step away from some kind of irrational attack against innocent kind of white people. This is foundational to kind of Trumpism and what we're hearing and just that's been going on at the Republican National Convention the last couple of days. So the point here is that that uh, black people in particular live in a police state due to pro- police brutality. And, you know, uh, you do focus on the fact, and, and Malcolm X does as well, that he's not against laws or the enforcement of laws, but he's uh, obviously pointing to something other than that here. Again, it's like this kind of reductive notion that black people want us to live in this system of kind of dystopia and nihilism where there's, there are no laws. It's back to kind of a Hobbesian state of nature where if you want something, you just take it, kill whomever you want. No one is proposing that, right? And he's making exactly the type of complicated argument, a defund the kind of police argument. What he wants to do is reorient the way we understand something like uh, justice, what, reorient what it means to have community service and take care of people rather than always using the police for every instance and, and, and thinking that the first thing that has to happen is to call armed people to deal with any situation. What he's saying is that policing as it exists in 1963 at the moment he's proposing it and, and even now in our moment in 2020 is completely ethically and foundationally bankrupt because it does not function properly. And he perfectly understands the necessity of having both laws and the enforcement of laws, but he's saying that that enforcement has become a type of coercive force in order to enforce a subject position that's underneath or forced to be underneath the, the mainstream of society. Yeah, I, th- I think he's called it unaccountable violence. Again, we, we seem to want to associate law and law enforcement with police or with policing as opposed to imagining laws as particular structures of organization and enforcement can be something else entirely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, you know, if you think that and this gets to the hate gang situation, right? It's like how many times do we have to hear about someone who, you know, Sandra Bland, for instance, right, who gets pulled over because or Fernando Castillo, who gets pulled over for a dysfunctioning taillight. And what's operating, it seems to be what's operating in the in the mind of the person who's policing them is that this person rat would rather pick up a capital murder charge and take a ticket, a $25 ticket for a busted taillight. They would rather murder a policeman. Getting back to this question of irrationality, right? So what we're seeing play out is that this notion of the irrational subject actually is the foundation of the argument that police make for uh, unaccountable violence against black bodies that they just can't think straight. Yeah, it actually displays the irrationality of enforcement, flips it on its head. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about Malcolm X's political philosophy with author and scholar Michael Sawyer. 
We'll be focusing on two iconic photographs of Malcolm X for the rest of this segment, as well as hear Sonia Sanchez recite her poem for Malcolm X. I found this chapter most interesting when you brought uh, Muhammad Ali into it as well, this uh, image that you point to. Uh, obviously, there are, uh, you note there are several iconic images of uh, Malcolm X, but this one seemed particularly interesting to you. Why? You know, I grew up in the 70s, and Muhammad Ali was a superhero, literally Superman, as far as I was concerned, like literally, right? I had this comic book where Muhammad Ali actually fought Superman and won, right? So <laughs> I grew up in an environment where, to me, uh, and this comes from, you know, just my dad I grew up in the rural Alabama, right? And what Muhammad Ali represented for recapturing a notion of the regal, regality, the kind of honor, the humanness of, of black people still resonates today, right? Muhammad Ali is is the greatest. And and so much of that was about his encounter with Malcolm X that I thought that image after uh, then Cassius Clay, soon to be Cassius X, when he explicitly accepted the Nation of Islam as his kind of religious and social formation after he defeated Sonny Liston the first time, right? That moment was the kind of uh, clarion call to say there's a, a type of, of black embodiedness that was no longer going to allow itself to be uh, beat down or humiliated by white people. The photo is is an amazing one, obviously, because you note that, and you note this is true. Obviously, it would be hard to upstage Malcolm X, but Muhammad Ali upstages everyone. He's Muhammad Ali, as you said, he's the greatest. He's always the greatest. He's always, you know, the the focus of attention. Um, and as you say at the time too, and as you just pointed out in your own responses to to him uh, at the time, the super uh, the heavyweight champion of the world was like the greatest athlete in the world. That's exactly what the heavyweight champion of the world represented was the kind of pinnacle of a type of physical embodiment and where the heavyweight champion of the world happened to come from meant something. Right. So for there to be an American heavyweight champion was important. But for that heavyweight champion to be a black American in the way that that Muhammad Ali situated himself as a black person became profoundly destabilizing the white supremacy. I like the way you interpret the photo. I like just looking at the photo through your eyes and the text. So Malcolm X is, this is at first at a lunch counter. And, and that, of course, presents that comparison to uh, non-violent lunch counter sit-ins. Um, and so you, you have to sort of think of the photo as a moment in time that parallels those moments as well, you know, or, or how we can compare it to the, the lunch counters, uh, the non-violent um, protests and lunch counters. Right. I mean, that image, and I encourage people to take a look at it, right? It becomes a type of phantasm almost that represents the kind of fulfillment of Malcolm X's kind of philosophical practice, a space that is completely captured by black people that pushes white people to literally the margins of the space in ways that counters did not, right? So in the image, Malcolm X is behind the counter. Cassius Clay, soon to be Muhammad Ali, is on the other side. and They're interacting with each other, but they're surrounded by black people. And there are a few white people have been literally pushed to the margins. One of them even be a police officer who's basically non-existent in that space in a way that we understand exactly what you're proposing, right? In the kind of civil rights march across the South, the notion of black people occupying lunch counters in that way and not being coercively threatened by state power was impossible. And they're demonstrating that this is possible in Miami, right? As far South as you can possibly be literally in, in the country, that's where they happen to be at this moment of triumph and for uh, Cassius Clay to become the heavyweight champion of the world. So it's all those things happening at the same time. It's one of those images. And Malcolm X was profoundly interested in, in the image that he presented, right? He's in, as you said, right, if Malcolm X is in the room, he becomes a type of center of gravity. But then to, to situate Muhammad Ali in the room at the same time is almost this clash of like, you know, 
solar systems of, or cosmos, right? Because they all, they each have their own kind of profound gravitational pull. So you're literally watching like the Milky Way collapse with Alpha Centauri in some way, right? Is these two titanic figures and they occupy the spaces almost symbiotically, right? And, and it becomes their space. And it's really a, an interesting photo to, to explore. It's a beautiful photo. And I love how happy they both look. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, again, listening to Malcolm X, right? Because there's always this notion that it's, it's all doom and gloom. And, you know, it's, you know, it's Jerry Myad, he's screaming at you. It really is not like that at all. He's, and everyone who meets him, whether it's James Baldwin or Maya Angelou, they talk about just how beautiful a person and kind a person that Malcolm X is, right? And he, and that's the way he presents himself. And you can see that in this kind of photo. The unfortunate end of Malcolm X is in this chapter as well and illustrated by another photograph where you, you point to what is, you know, Possibly the the most awful thing, um, besides uh, being sh- murdered, but that the police are attending the body as it's removed from the uh, the theater. This chapter ends with the collapse of that phantasm that I described from that lunch counter, right? And so, at the end of it all, it was unsustainable because the world had not changed itself completely. And those police who, in that image with Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, that had been pushed to the to the margins, are now literally the people carrying his body away from the place where he's been assassinated. And even when you read accounts of his funeral, right, there are police officers guarding the body of Malcolm X, right, which begins to show you just how complicated the relationship of black bodies to policing happens to be, because. Malcolm X would never have called the police and the police have to are supposedly to protect him, supposedly uh, hate him. You know, this this really complex relationship. And so that image of his body being pulled out of the Audubon ballroom after after he's been assassinated and the police actually carrying it, I think for me is profoundly interesting to think about and also heartbreaking in the way that it shows that what he's working on doesn't become fulfilled at, at that moment. Yeah, it's it's as if they've they've taken back possession of him. Absolutely. El Haj Malik Shabazz. Do not speak to me of martyrdom, of men who died to be remembered on some parish day. I don't believe in dying, though I too shall die, and violets like castanets will echo me. Yet, this man. This dreamer, thick-lipped with words, will never speak again. And in each winter, when the cold air cracks with frost, I'll breathe his breath and mourn my gun-filled nights. He was the sun that tagged the western sky and melted tiger scholars while they searched for stripes. He said, forget you, white man. We have been curled too long. Nothing is sacred now, not your white face, nor any land that separates until some voices squat with spasms. Do not speak to me of living. Life is obscene with crowds of white on black. Death is my pulse. What might have been is not for him or me. But what could have been floods the womb until I drown. I know he's gone. 
It's time for another break. This is New Africa, another from Archie Shep, off of the 1969 release The Way Ahead. More with Michael Sawyer on Malcolm X and becoming black-minded when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back to Interchange, our show is Marking Revolution about the revolutionary politics of Malcolm X, and our guest is Michael Sawyer. We begin with a discussion of marinage, which literally means the process of extracting oneself from slavery by running away into the swamps of the southern states. But we'll also look at the way Sherman's Special Field Order Number no. 15 did its own kind of extracting, issued in the field from Savannah, Georgia on January 16th, 19- On January 16, 1865, it reserved and set aside abandoned rice fields along the Atlantic coast for the settlement of blacks made free by the acts of war. The next chapter is uh, geographic space, and in this chapter, the focus here I'd like, uh, if you don't mind, like to place on the aspect of marinage and uh, how you, um, you make, uh, I guess Malcolm X makes use of Sherman's special field order number 15, I guess to talk about segregation and marinage, you know, setting up different ways of, of occupying space. Right. Yeah. So, you know, this is back to, at its, at its, at its outset, is back to Nation of Islam Orthodoxy, which is a black separatist movement, which basically leans itself on Sherman's field order. This is the kind of classic 40 acres and a meal argument that if you read the field order carefully, it's actually setting up a separate nation or uh, literally a black run colonial space in the, in the, in the islands, uh, off the coast of South Carolina, right? Sherman argues that black people will inhabit this space. Uh, the only white people allowed there will be part of the garrison that's there to protect them until they can protect themselves, kind of acknowledging that they're going to be threats on the outside. And it's literally this reflects on what, what marinage happens to be, which is a phenomena typically from the Caribbean, but also happens not infrequently in the United States, particularly in the South, uh, in Florida, outside of Tallahassee and places like that, where enslaved black people would escape into the swamps and, and they would oftentimes form alliances with indigenous people in order to protect themselves. And in the Caribbean, particularly in Jamaica, and also in the early moments preceding the Haitian Revolution, there were maroon colonies, which were acknowledged by the colonial powers, the British, the French, whomever they happened to be, as kind of autonomously existing. And it was this uncomfortable relationship. It's almost a colony within the colony. And what Malcolm X is arguing is that spaces like Harlem, uh, Detroit, Black Chicago, Oakland, Los Angeles, 
what have you. He's literally proposing, and this becomes orthodoxy for the Black Panther Party, that Black people are colonized people within the United States. And those spaces are actually colonies. And so the notion of marinage would be to create kind of separate spaces that acknowledge the existence of this larger power, but have the kind of autonomous existence within them. He's struggling to kind of figure out how Black nationalism functions without a notion of geographic or space in the way we understand nation to nation states kind of post-Treaty of Westphalia. So there's no space left to move to, basically. Is there space within another space? So it's a, the, the ability to think of uh, the, the places you named already, like Harlem or Detroit, as colonies that could be self-governing colonies, a step on the way to a different world if the colony has allowed that space of marinage to operate on its own to serve itself. Right. We'd be remiss if we didn't understand how important Marcus Garvey is to this conversation. So Garveyism and this notion of a return to Africa becomes the foundation of Malcolm X's thinking. Uh, both his father was a Garveyite and the broad acceptance of Garvey's propositions that happened in the early 20th century, right? And so what Malcolm X is, is trying to figure out, and this is how Malcolm X oftentimes gets reduced even on the progressive side of thinking is that, oh, it's silly to imagine black nationalism without a nation state. Abstractly, Malcolm X seems to be proposing that the body actually becomes a nation state and it's transportable. And so what he's saying is that the black body, the coerced black body, the subject of kind of white supremacy that can't find any extra space, right? The world is occupied and what he doesn't want to be about the business of doing is becoming a colonial power on their own, right? So there's no notion of Black Americans arming themselves and going and taking over other spaces and displacing other people, right? That doesn't make any sense to him either. So what he's saying is that the space that has to be governed, the final kind of geographic space that, that Black people have, and this is part of being Black-minded to fill up, fill the Black-mindedness with, is actually the body. The body becomes something to be protected, becomes something with its own borders. Uh, it can accept things in, it can let things out, and it's also transportable. So that allows a kind of transnational nationalism where this question of worldwide Black revolution and worldwide Black uh, presentism allows Black people to then determine, self-determine what states they want to associate themselves with, whether they actually embody themselves in that space or not, they can associate themselves with them in order to be able to make an argument that they are being aggrieved and be able to use human rights at the level of the world court and the United Nations rather than being marginalized citizens within a colonized citizens within a place like the United States. As you have walked into revolution, the last chapter, let's go ahead and go there. Malcolm. If George Washington didn't get independence for this country nonviolently, and if Patrick Henry didn't come up with a nonviolent statement, and you uh, taught me to look upon them as patriots and heroes, then it's time for you to realize I have studied your books well. So 1964, we'll see the Negro Revolt evolve and merge into the worldwide black revolution that has been taking place on this earth since 1945. The so-called revolt will become a real black revolution. Now, the black revolution has been taking place in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America. When I say black, I mean non-white. Black, brown, red, or yellow. Our brothers and sisters in Asia who were colonized by the Europeans our brothers and sisters in Africa who were colonized by the Europeans, and in Latin America, the peasants who were colonized by the Europeans. 
have, they have been involved in a struggle since 1945 to get the colonialists or the, colo the colonizing power, the Europeans, off their land, out of their country. This is a, a real revolution. Revolution is always based on land. Revolution is never based on begging somebody for an integrated cup of coffee. The essay used there is, or again, the speech uh, is the Black Revolution from April 1964, and it is a uh, you do focus on, or Malcolm X focuses on the UN Declaration of Human Rights uh, versus in, in stark opposition to the idea of civil rights. Why, how are those two different? Yeah, Malcolm X's kind of foundational point of concern with the civil rights movement is just that, right? He doesn't believe that civil rights can precede human rights. He thinks you have to have human rights and be accepted as a human being. And this is, you know, this is basically French revolutionary orthodoxy, right? The rights of man and citizen. You can't have one without the other. It's not either or. So he's saying that you have to be understood to be human and, and treated as a human being. Then we can start talking about something like how that human being exists in a particular type of political formation. King's argument is just the opposite of that. He believes that in I shouldn't be so reductive, right? King has a complicated relationship to this. He begins to understand that human rights become profoundly important. Mm -hmm. But he also believes that the promise of democracy, the promise of the American democratic experiment can accommodate the existence of those who had been excluded but through the law, right? Through the relationship to the Constitution. This is Frederick Douglass believed this as well, right? And so Malcolm X is disinterested in that. And that's kind of foundational to everything we've been talking about as we get to this point of him finally when he gives that speech, the Black Revolution speech, which I read as a coherent relation to his other speech from the same time period, the Battle of the Bullet, is to then think about what it means to, to be a human being first and then start arguing for a relationship to different states is itself a revolutionary position. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be revolution the way that we understand them from kind of, you know, the French Revolution kind of forward, where there are these bloody encounters. He actually proposes there's a possibility of a bloodless revolution to the extent that this can this can happen, that there are actual mechanisms set up that would allow uh, black people to be able to have their their situation adjudicated by some kind of earth earthly authority, right? The UN, a uh, world court, whomever, and then be able to say that they have been mistreated and then have that repaired. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today we're talking about Malcolm X and being black-minded with author Michael Sawyer. We'll close out the show detailing the real differences between civil rights and human rights and why Malcolm X insisted that justice for black people in the USA could only come from an international court. There are places that are not white supremacist, and these are nation states as well. And so they have a voice on the world stage to oppose white supremacy. So to make use of that, make use of that organization that can bring those nations together to have some strength to oppose white supremacy. Absolutely. Statehood and statelessness are essential ideas for these kinds of protections, right? So uh, one of the, uh, I guess one of the things the Nazis first did against Jews was to sort of say they were no longer German. And so they had no state protection. And so making the argument, philosophical argument, that the body can be a state in some sense allows, again, if it's, if it's acknowledged as such, right, to be protected 
from these aggressive other state actors. You can't alienate the body from itself. And your point with what was going on with Nazi Germany and this notion of extracting citizenship from Jewish citizens is exactly the point, right? Because then they're no longer part of the law. The stateless kind of existence that actually is profoundly stated, they're profoundly related to the state in that the state defines them not being related to the state. And so it's a double bind. This is, again, how Malcolm X's system of thinking is applicable across a couple of different modes of existence. We can see now how it's applicable to thinking about the situation that happened with Jewish people in Nazi Germany, where they're rendered to be almost colonized within the state. And then the, the camp becomes kind of a space of, of internment and detention for those who have become necessarily enforceably stateless. And literally, Hitler begins to argue that the Jews are basically... Uh, Germany's Negroes. He literally uses that term, right? And mm-hmm. so that notion of the other, the radical other, Berman, those who are who are always going to undermine the integrity of the state, they lack patriotism, they can't be participant in it, they have to be pushed to the margin. Nazi Germany is a particular type of white supremacy. What's happening in the United States is a particular type, right? But it's all genus and species where we can then see the particularities of it, but also see these kinds of important overlaps mm-hmm. and then be able to to point out the places where it can be destabilized. Malcolm, my people, dear God, Malcolm. So you have whites in the community who uh, express sincerity when they say they want to help. Well, how can they help? How can a white person help? The black man solve his problem. Number one, you can't solve it for him. You can help him solve it, but you can't solve it for him today. One of the best ways that you can solve it, or help him solve it, is to let the so-called Negro who's been involved in the civil rights struggle see that the civil rights struggle must be expanded beyond the level of civil rights to the level of human rights. Once it is expanded beyond the level of civil rights to the level of human rights, it opens the door for all of our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia who have their independence to come to our rescue. Why? When you take, uh, when you go to Washington, D.C., expecting those crooks down there to pass some kind of, and that's what they are. To pass some kind of civil rights legislation to correct the, a, a very criminal situation, what you're doing is encouraging the black man who is the victim to take his case into the court that's controlled by the country. It'll never be solved in that way. Just like running from the wolf to the fox. The civil rights struggle involves the black man taking his case to the white man's court. But when he uh, fights it at the human rights level, it's a different situation. It opens the door for him to take Uncle Sam, the world court. Uncle Sam should be taken into the United Nations and charged with violating the UN Charter on Human Rights. Now, you mentioned the ballot or the bullet there, and we've mentioned the UN Declaration and civil rights. And can you sort of talk about those within the framework of making use of the master's tools? So what's going on in the instance of the master's tools is is particularly to consider the notion of the vote. And so Malcolm X has his complex relationship to determining what exactly is the point of, of voting. And he understands the power of the vote and also is 
interested in, in making sure people are aware of the limitations of the vote as well. And he thinks that voting has to be a thoughtful process. During one of the elections, he talks about this notion of the lesser of two evils, but he necessarily stays out of the country in order for the lesser evil not to be associated with him in order to kind of undermine the election, right? And so he understands the black body's relationship to American electoral politics is complicated in exactly the same way we're seeing it complicated today, right? You're never going to get everything that you want, but the vote has power and he's interested in kind of exploring how that power exists. And so when he says the ballot or the bullet, he actually believes the ballot is a type of bullet, right? That it actually can be used to kind of destabilize. He's talking particularly about the Dixiecrats in the South, who at the time were filibustering the uh, civil rights amendments. He's saying how powerless they actually should be because they are actually illegally in office because black people are not allowed to vote. And if they were allowed to vote, none of those people would be in office. So this is where he's taking up this question and demonstrating how we have to be thinking carefully about something like voter suppression and what that all means. Right. And also the thoughtfulness and and the important nature of black electoral politics that actually can swing elections in one direction or the other. And being able to understand how that functions is what he's up to and using that tool. Right. That tool of the Constitution that's profoundly related to the three fifths compromise and Federalist 54 in order to use it as a type of uh, tool for political empowerment is exactly the complication of the master's tools. The black vote is made use of for the master in the first place, you know, uh, and that's that's something that has to be contended with. And how does one organize within the the state that has rigged the tool in the first place? Yeah, right. This is, you know. Audrey Lord's classic formation, right? Can the master's tools dismantle the master's house? And it's a complicated question. And I think to propose that is to really get to the heart of the matter and then to even have ourselves kind of reflected back to the very beginning is that's a way of thinking. And what he's saying is that that's a thoughtful process. And that's what being black minded is about, right? Because at the end, end of this argumentation, the kind of intellectual journey that he's on now, if he's black, sufficiently black minded, he can then be able to examine the options in front of him and pick the one that's going to accrue to the benefit of the people that most concern him. And his other point is that to the extent that the black people are taken care of, the society is taken care of. He's like, you can't have marginalized people within your societal order because it necessarily uh, creates a situation where people are dehumanizing themselves by dehumanizing others. Mm-hmm. So again, it's back to this practice of uplifting the entire human race by eliminating the possibility of a system that is designed to undermine the existence of certain people based upon subjective characteristics. That's our show. We'll close with The Cry of My People, another from Archie Shepp, released in 1973. Thanks to Michael Sawyer for joining us to discuss his new book from Pluto Press, Black Minded, The Political Philosophy of Malcolm X. Please do visit us at WFHB.org to access links to the audio used for today's program. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Oh,